0: You know, it's so hard to compliment people, um, encourage them, when deep down you're jealous. It's hard to look at someone who's in the same field as you who is succeeding, someone who's in your program at university, someone's on your team, and they're ahead in the stats, and it's hard to honestly be like, good job, when deep at the core of your soul. you're jealous because if you're honest you, you feel like you're, you're, you're better than they are, you, if anybody should be succeeding it should be you, then you're not and it's frustrating it's like those moments where somebody uh, gets the promotion you were hoping to get and you're like, good job, I'm so happy for you they, they get into the program that you applied for and you're like, oh, where'd go? the game is over and you're saying, good game, good game, good game, I hate you, good game, good game Right? Our text today is Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, uh, the gospel writer records a moment of great failure with the disciples. It's where Jesus addresses a very dark corner in their hearts. And it's good because we get the benefit of learning from this so we can pause and consider our own hearts. And we can pause and consider with great honesty the dark corners in our own hearts. Um, This text doesn't simply... Point points us to our sin, it points us past our sin, to a great Savior whose grace stretches further than our sin, to Christ alone who took away all of our sin. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest And Jesus sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If any of you would be first, he must be the last and servant of all. And Jesus took a child, and he put the child in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting demons out in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him, for no one who works miracles in my name will readily speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him If a great millstone was hung around his neck and you were thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life in the kingdom with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. This passage begins with Jesus saying to the disciples, Hey, what are you guys talking about? And they get squirmish, they're like little kids. And they're embarrassed because their conversation was, who's the greatest? Oh, my goodness. We can identify with these guys. I'm so thankful for the gritty honesty of the Bible. Uh, and I want you to notice Jesus' answer, right, Is on how to be the greatest, is it's the way down, not the way up. Serving and caring. And, and uh, this is what he gives, the way of the cross, right? This is how Jesus answers it. What the disciples are really up to, the reason why they're having the discussion in the first place about who's the greatest, is because they're with a man who is shushing hurricanes, raising the dead, healing at will, right? He's got carbs on demand. He's multiplying bread in the desert. They're with Jesus, and they're thinking to themselves, we are going to fix this whole thing. We have the Davidic kingdom has been in ruin for for millennia, Christ is the one that's going to fulfill all the prophecies, he's bringing back the Davidic kingdom, he's obviously going to sit, he's going to overthrow Rome, and we're all going to be really important people in the new world order. So they're having lots of conversations about greatness, because this is how they've kind of framed uh, this, it's the way of glory, that's how they're thinking of it, but Jesus is saying the way of greatness is not the way of glory, it's the way of the cross, and the way of the cross is this serving and this giving, he is the king who came to serve, right? This is his answer. And so, Jesus takes this child again, right? And he keeps doing this, and he puts the child in the midst. And he gives them this, this picture of dependence and humility to counter, counteract and juxtapose their independence and superiority, right? And, uh, but what's interesting is, while Jesus is giving them this lesson, it's like they're not really listening to him. Because you notice the next conversation that happens hey, what were you guys talking about? We're talking about being great. Okay, we're going to give you an object lesson. Here's a little child. I'm going to talk about serving. And while he's doing this, then the next thing that happens is John says, hey, there's this guy casting out demons. It's like, wait, what? Do you notice that? How many of you kids have ever had your parents talking to you, but you're not really listening to them? You're looking at them, and you're like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they say, what did I just say? And you're like, just repeat it one more time, just in case I didn't. Right? And there's grown adults that do this. I do this. There's, there's spouses all across this room nudging one another. Because you're like, what did I just say? Oh, I Say it one more time. Sometimes you have people give entire, you entire conversations, and then at the end of them you say, you just go, what, wait, what? I wasn't listening. And you're like, what, really? You were, like, you were physically looking at me. Look at what happened your... here. <laughs> it's amazing. John's like, hey, uh, there's this guy. He's casting out demons, but he's not with us. Verse 38. It's this really insidious sin of pride, right? It's set in, and it's it's caused those who were following Jesus to become kind of exclusive, feel superior, that anyone who wasn't in the 12 and didn't have the matching jacket, right, couldn't minister in the name of Jesus. They stopped the guy. They said, he was casting out demons in your name. We told him to stop, though. Because he's not one of the twelve. Nobody outside the twelve walks with Jesus like we do. Nobody outside our denomination walks with Jesus like we do. Nobody outside this local church walks with Jesus like we do. Nobody gets grace like we do. Nobody gets, this is what's happening. They're like, hey, stop it. You're not one of us. He's doing it in Jesus' name. The man says no. The man wouldn't stop. Because he was a genuine follower of Of Jesus. He genuinely trusted and believed in Jesus. So in verse 39, Jesus validates the ministry of somebody who's totally outside the group. Think about that. Why would Jesus do that? Aren't the twelve a really big deal? Well, they're important. I'm not minimizing the importance. Right? Aren't the twelve a really big deal? Aren't those who do gospel ministry a really big deal? Well, there's a guy doing exorcisms, but they don't we don't even get his name. What does that tell you? You'd think doing exorcisms is a pretty big deal. We don't even get his name. The Bible doesn't even name him. What's going on here? Aren't all the people who are in ministry supposed to be a big deal? Jesus didn't say, hey, what? Well, there's somebody else doing exorcisms in my name. Well, go get that guy. Bring him in here. We're assembling the team of the, the, the earth's mightiest heroes. We need that guy. Peter, by the way, you're fired. The, you've been a little slow. The Mount of Transfiguration thing was a real mess. The whole three tabernacles for you, Elijah. and uh, No, it's just, Peter, we've got to let you go. We need this guy that's casting out demons. None of it plays out like this. Jesus validates the ministry of a man that he hadn't even met because the followers of Christ are not the big deal. The name of Jesus is the big deal. It's not the disciples' names. It's not the denomination name. It's not the local church name. It's not your name. It's not my name. It's his name. That's why Jesus validates the ministry of somebody he hadn't even met. He just hears it's in his name. And Jesus goes, that's the whole, that's what I'm trying to get at here. Verse 40, we're we're given this radical statement by Jesus. Jesus says, the one who's not against us is for us. Wow. The disciples, they want to divide people into categories, right? Categories. The 12 are in a relationship rich, teaching drenched category. This guy who's not a part of the 12, he needs to be put in his place. He needs to be told he's in some sort of a second tier category second-strain category, but Jesus redefines all the categories. The categories of God's children are not good to great. They're not top-shelf and bargain bin. They're not upper-class and lower-class. The categories are in or out. Those are the categories. If you trust in Christ, you're in. If you don't put your trust in Christ and something else is your little mini-Messiah, you're out. That's actually very good news. I'm going to get to that in a minute, because some of you who are here, you may really struggle with that. You go, oh my goodness, this is so binary. This is so black and white. I watched a really cruddy Star Wars movie one time that said that only Siths deal in absolutes. Well, relax. I'm going to get to all these arguments in a second. Now watch. This is incredible what Jesus says here. He says that You're not in or out on the basis of your name. You're not in or out on the basis of the group's name. You're not in or out on the basis of the denomination's name. You're in and out on the basis of his name. Jesus boldly announces that we are with him on the the basis of his perfection, right? Not our name and our sinful imperfection. So if you are perhaps new here to the scriptures or you're exploring Christian faith or you're Perhaps you're not a a believer, but you have questions about Christ and Christianity. And this is one of your struggles, to say, because our modern conversations about God... Okay, so if you're here this morning and you're an agnostic, and you are basically haunted by the divine, haunted by the idea that there is a God, and the modern conversations about God are that he's either, one, he should accept everybody, or two... He should just accept good people. If you're good people, that should be enough. You don't need to trust in Jesus, you just need to be good, right? These are kind of some of the modern conversations about this. Well, let's look at this. It leads us to two problems. Here's the first problem. The first problem is if you construct a God that accepts everybody, then in the end, injustice and oppression and violence goes unanswered. Right? If he just accepts everybody, and you look on the landscape of the world today, and you read through your newsfeed, and you see that our world is a paradox, right? There are beautiful, good things happening, but there are also evil atrocities going on. And if this God you've constructed says at the end of time, well, we're just going to accept everybody, you haven't made him more loving. You've made him unloving. Because any judge in any courtroom that lets somebody who's guilty go free is going to cause for half of that courtroom to weep at injustice. Nobody's going to leave that courtroom and go, what a, and ju- what a love and generous judge. Half of that room is going to walk out weeping, saying, what a miscarry of injustice. So when you construct a modern construct of God and say, well, he should just accept everyone, you're really saying in the end, the evil atrocities that turn your stomach should just, we should wink at those. God, the divine, should wink at those. So that, that's a problem. That God is not worthy of our worship. Which leads to the second problem. And the second problem is, well, if God is just then, if he's just, and he's going to punish evil, and he's going to reward what is good, then what's the standard of good? And if, you, if I give you two minutes, you'll be able to think of somebody who's more patient than you are, who's a kinder person than you are, who's more generous than you are, right? who demonstrates themselves in a more loving way than you do. It won't take you long to think of somebody and go, there's an aspect of their character that I wish I saw more of in my life. I mean, I don't, regardless of your worldview, all of us, n- nobody would stand in a line marked perfect, right? So the question then becomes, well, if God's just supposed to accept who's good, what's the standard of good? Who gets to climb up into the throne and determine what's good? What is that? Because there's different standards, right? For example, none of you get excited when you're on a road trip about stopping at a gas station bathroom. (laughs) Like everybody in this room is like, I'll hold it. (laughs) Give me a water bottle. Like We'll do whatever we have to do to not use this gas station bathroom because they have a very different standard of cleanliness than you do. And so that's why we say, well, no, there's a standard of clean and that's not it. You know, isn't it reasonable that if there was a divine God that created the cosmos and spun it into existence with the word of his power from love because the Father, Son, and the Spirit loved one another for all of eternity, this God was not a singularity looking to create minions to worship him so he could feel good about himself. He was already complete within himself. He needed nothing. But he spun the cosmos into existence because of love. And then that God would have a standard. Isn't it it logical and reasonable that that standard would be perfection? Would be perfect love? Because compared to God, our definitions of clean are like gas station bathrooms. In comparison to his his love and his purity. And so that's why Jesus recalibrates these categories. It's not about your name. It's not about your club, guys. It's about my name. If, you're in, if you trust me and if you are a follower of me and that man over there whose name we don't know, he is a follower of me, he's in. Because now you've taken, this is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus condemns the disciples for being exclusive, Jesus communicates that salvation by grace is inclusive because he's taking divine acceptance out of the category of, of who thinks they're good. And he puts it into the the category of trusting him, who's perfectly good, which means there's not a certain... Kids, if you look down in your notes, this is so important, I put it in your notes for you. This means there's not a certain kind of person that Jesus accepts. It means anyone who trusts in Jesus, Jesus accepts. See, if you say, well, the most loving God is the God that just accepts somebody who's good, then what you've just said is there's only certain kind of people God will accept. Good ones. So that means there's people that they, have, they just have no hope of being accepted by that God because it's just not that good. I'm looking at a bunch of them right now. You're all looking at one right now. Do you, there's moments I am absolutely not good. There's moments when you are absolutely not good. You know your own heart. You know your own mind. You're not good. So if God accepts people on the basis of their goodness, then we're all damned. So what Jesus does is he reallocates this aspect of goodness into who he is in his name. He says that's why he's condemning the exclusivity of these disciples who are trying to make it all about the 12 that are actually following Jesus rather than the actual name of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's exclusive because you've got to call on the name of the Lord. You can't call on any other name or your own name. You can't stand before God and say, well, I'm a good person. Well, then you're standing in your own name. And your cleanliness is like a gas station bathroom compared to the divine. So good luck with that. But the good news is, you can trust in Jesus' name. And everybody in this room who hears the gospel can do that. Anyone who hears the gospel and trusts in the name of the Lord can do that. There's not a certain kind of person. Every kind of person from every culture, creed, class, who places their name in Christ's history has been saved because they're putting all their chips on Jesus. So in verse 41, Jesus goes further and he, and he challenges their pride and he kind of paves this pathway to humility and Jesus conjures up an image of someone giving a cup of water in his name, right, to, to really bang his point home. He says, you know, if, even if somebody hands a cup of water in my name, uh, you know, their, their reward won't be taken from them. And in this hot, dry land, a cup of water is a small thing, but it's a very important thing. It's a needed thing. How many of you kids have ever been outside playing and you've been really, really hot and you wish you had some water and you don't have any water and you're, and you're, and you're walking home and your throat's getting all dry? How many of you adults have ever been in that situation? Been in a hot place, wish you had a cup of water? I remember being in Guatemala with a bunch of teenagers and we had this day off, quote-unquote, and it was, a, it was a crazy day off because it was our hardest day walking in the hot sun, Go to see this waterfall. Walking up these hills, I want to call them mountains because they felt like mountains, but there were these huge hills. Walking up these huge hills, and it was in this beating hot sun. And I'm carrying this uh, Gatorade jug full of water with uh, my friend Ryan, and uh, it's so hot, and and we can barely carry this thing. And we slip, and uh, he lets go, and it's so heavy, I let go, and this big Gatorade jug of water falls down the side of the hill and it just bounces all the way down, hundreds of yards, bounces all the way down the, the side of this hill. It was a very steep, steep embankment we were walking on and he just looks at me and he's like, Pastor Paul, please don't make me go get that and I'm like, forget it, we will buy another, I'm just thinking like a North American, we will buy another one, we are not, we can't go back down and I'll back up, we'll die and while we're arguing this little Guatemalan guy, like a ninja, just goes all the way down and comes up with, scales the wall with one hand and carries it back up to us. Saves all of our lives. A cup of water given in Jesus' name. That man's reward. He's got rewards in heaven. That Guatemalan. I'm high-fiving him when I get to heaven. Thank you for saving my life, friend. (laughs) Dios la bendiga. So, in this illustration, though, the disciples aren't the ones giving the water. They're the ones receiving the water. Jesus says, if anybody gives you a cup of water, why? This is so important. This is why I'm I'm dragging it out, bringing it up. Because what Jesus does here is he doesn't give an illustration where the the disciples are in a sufficient position. He gives them an illustration where the disciples are in a needy position. They're all exclusive. You're not part of the 12. You're casting out demons in my name. And Jesus is like, oh, really? You guys are not in a posture of, of excluding people. You need to reorient your posture and have a posture of receiving from people. Not just any people, Christ followers, outside your little group. That's, that's what this is. They're like, hey, you're not part of our little group. You're not in our denomination. You're not, in our, you're, not, you're not with us. You don't have a matching jacket. And Jesus goes, okay, so you think you're in a position of excluding? You need to be in a position of receiving. Let's say you're dying of thirst on a hot day, and one of those guys gives you a glass of water. You're getting a reward for that. You've got to reorient how you're thinking here. There's no room for superiority in the body of Christ. So Jesus is kind of just, you know, massaging in this teaching. And uh, because, there's no, of course, there's no hierarchy. So in verse 42, we get this well-known statement, very well-known statement Jesus gives. He says, it'd be better if there was a millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. That's some heightened hyperbole, right? than to offend one of these little ones. And the little ones that Jesus is referring to is not just the little one, the child that he put in the middle of them. That's a little one. But you know who else is a little one? The guy casting out demons in Jesus' name that's not part of the disciples. He's a new believer. He's a little one. This is not just about offending children, a child. It's about offending someone who's new with childlike faith. And Jesus says, the way you disciples are conducting yourselves... This is not good. In fact, you know, when Jesus saw the superiority and sectarianism rear its ugly head in the disciples, he responded with the strongest language possible. Hey, guys, it'd be better if you were sleeping with the fishes than to cause someone who trusts in my name, who's doing faithful ministry in my name, to stumble and stop trusting in my name. And So to sin or to stumble, to be offended, some of your Bibles say stumble or offended in the Greek... That word is scandalizo, which is where we get our English word scandal. And so the reason why Jesus uses this word is because he's saying, if as followers of Christ, we relate to a child or a childlike believer in a way that bears no resemblance to the grace of Christ, if we are naming the name of Christ but not resembling Christ, they're going to come to the logical conclusion that if that's what being a Christian is, they don't want any part of it. And Jesus calls that a scandal. Because it's a total scandal. And some of us have done that in this room. I've done it. Here's the good news. There is forgiving grace for all of us who have caused scandal. There's forgiving grace for us. And there's saving grace for the ones that we've offended. Jesus is that good. He's that good. And so this warning about all of these offenses... It leads into the next section in verses 44 to 46. Because right now you're talking about offending other people through your sin. So the disciples are being exclusive. You're going to offend other people. You're going to cause them to turn from Christ because you're not resembling Christ. Jesus says, that's a total scandal. If you really marvel at grace, then that's going to start bleeding out in our life. Even though, of course, we all struggle with sin. This is what Jesus is saying is guys. And so then this, this warning of external kind of offense it shifts to internal offense, offending yourself because of sin. And that's why the narrative shifts uh, to the sin that causes, uh, sorry, to the living in a way that causes us to sin. And so that's where Jesus says, if your hand or your foot or your eye, they cause you to sin, cut them off. And of course, he's not speaking literally. He's drawing our attention to the dramatic implications of sin and our souls spiritually. And he's explicitly saying, get rid of whatever is causing you to sin. He's being very explicit about it. He's using the strongest possible language um, to say this. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you are probably anticipating this is the point in the sermon where I'm going to start listing all kinds of things we can cut out of our lives. And there's wisdom in that. And this text does mean that. We should do that. We find there's things that are causing us to sin, cut them out of our lives. That is true. But that's not enough, that's not what Jesus is getting at because if I was to turn the sermon right now and say you know, freeze your credit card in a block of ice, that's because you, you you're, uh, you're the sin of greed and of uh, you know, no control and, and this you know, constant, uh, you know, unrest in your soul, you just got to keep clicking to add to cart, All you can't stop, you can't stop yourself, you got to freeze your church, you got to freeze your credit card in ice, the, the problem is your, your hand is not making you do that your eye isn't making you do that, right? Amazon Prime's not making you do that. If I was to say, uh, you've got to put software on your computers because some of you are struggling sexually and you're looking at explicit content and it's going to be damaging. To your marriage, it's going to be damaging to your heart, to your life, for you young people looking at this stuff, it's going to be damaging to your soul, it's going to be recalibrating your mind in unhealthy physiological ways that are going to impact your future relationships, you need to get rid of that stuff. Okay, that is true, and that would be helpful, and probably be a wise thing if that's something that you need to do, okay, that would be helpful. But your eye isn't making you look at that stuff. If I was to say to you, uh, "Stop making excuses to walk by that person's desk, who you're attracted to, who's not your spouse, and coming up with reasons to have silly little conversations just so you can see them one more time before you go home," church, stop doing that. If I if that was if I just did that, that would be wise. That would be helpful. That would be in line with this text. Be like, stop it. Cut it out of your life. Right? It's causing you to sin. That would be wise but your feet aren't making you go there. This is what Jesus is provo- provoking by all the stuff, by the strongest language possible, is that it's, it's, it's not the hand, it's not the eye, it's not the foot, it's the heart. And we can't cut our hearts out. I'm no doctor. But we need those. So when Jesus is saying we've got to cut the stuff out of our life that's causing us to sin... And if the root at what's actually causing all of us to do all of these things is, is our heart, we can't behave our way into new hearts. Transformation is not from the outside in. We can't read self-help books and, and, and magically change the core of our appetites. Those appetites are disordered, and we need saving. We need something that's divine. And Jesus is saying all this so that we will take everything out of all their other categories and put them into the category of, i got to trust in, in Jesus and put all of my hope in Jesus. Jesus challenged us to consider the depth of our sin, not because he came to accuse us with the law, but because he came to exonerate us by grace. What was the purpose of Christ coming? To tell us how bad we were? No, we were condemned already, John 3, 17. He came to save us from this condemnation. He came to do what we could not do. See, the bad news of this, uh, of this text, the bad news of the teaching of Jesus here is that our sinful, unloving actions driven by disordered appetites is what's making us do the sin and it's making, it's making it impossible for us to please God. But here's the good news of what Jesus is getting at and here's the good news of what Jesus came to do. Jesus pleased God for us, So that now, united to God, by Christ, the Spirit of Christ is continually reforming our appetites and continually giving us new desires. The bad news is that we're all headed towards the trajectory of death, and the good news is that Christ came to interrupt that trajectory of death. And so when you get to verses 49 and 50, Jesus kind of ends the teaching here. He wraps it up by talking talking to his disciples about living lives using the images of salt and fire. Right? He's talking about preservation, he's talking about purification, living lives of sacrifice and service. Right? You put this back into context, you've got this fellow believer, the whole reason we have this teaching is because here's a guy trusting in Christ, casting out demons in the name of Christ, and the disciples go over and they're the opposite of serving. They're self-serving. So they don't go over and serve that guy, they don't go over and hug him and kiss him and say, You believe too? This is amazing. And they don't run back to Jesus and go, Master, there are people outside of our little group. Can you believe it? And Jesus is like, Yeah. What do you think I came for? You 12? This guy's stealing money out of the bag every time you guys go for a bagel run. It's just... It's not... So Jesus says guys serving sacrifice salt preserves that's what we're supposed to be about you know fire it purifies and so he's he's using these images to say the whole reason he did it is you ran into the exact opposite thing you went self-serving and you would have caused this guy over here who trusts in Jesus to turn and stop trusting in Jesus hey stop doing that you're not part of the 12 what what do you mean no no you got to have a matching jacket or you can't do this well what But I I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I'm worshiping Jesus, I'm casting out demons in the name of Jesus. No, 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 if you're not on the list, your name is not on the list. Well, if this is what Christianity is, how many times have you heard that in your lifetime? That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's like, hey, guys. Now look at this, it's so good. He's not putting the burden on disciples or you and I to be the ultimate preserving agent. The ones that we can't preserve a decaying humanity. It's Christ that will preserve it. Christ is the one whose ultimate sacrifice will preserve you and preserve me for all of eternity. And so united to Christ, we are free now, free to live lives of sacrifice so that as we share the gospel, Christ continues to preserve others for all of eternity. And so that's why we're liberated for a life of service and not, you know, exclusivity like what was demonstrated in this text. And so the ancient Christians who would have read this passage I'm reading to you uh, about salt and fire, it would have hit home for them because under Roman reign, particularly Nero, there were a lot of Christians uh, who preserved the gospel like salt because they were burned with fire. So this imagery that Mark is using, that first century church would have been like, yeah, we get what's up here. The, gospel ha- the only way for the gospel to be preserved is if I have the attitude of a servant. Who's willing to live and serve and love and care. Even to the point of death, which many of the early Christians did see that. Well, in the first century, to share your faith in Christ, you were risking physical death. Here in the 21st century in KW, to share our faith, we risk social or relational death. But we're children of grace. And we know that because of Christ, we will be preserved for all of eternity. Church, you will be preserved for all of eternity. And that should give you great boldness. Great boldness and uh, hearts of love with which to relate with, to everybody who is outside of this room. And so Jesus charges followers to, to be like salt, to be a preserving agent in a, decaying, uh, in a decaying world, not by the power of their eloquence, not by the power of our eloquence, but by the power of his spirit, because we can't do it, but Christ does do it through us. And so th- the first readers would have also understood that salt is not pure, just like our hearts aren't pure. It's mixed. The Dead Sea salt, it was no good. It lost its saltiness very quickly, because there were so many other contaminants in the Dead Sea salt. And so they would have known that they're mixed, and just like our hearts are mixed. And so we're being called now uh, as his followers, where Jesus says in verse 50, as we close this morning, he says, "Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another." See, he's calling those who trust and rest in His grace to live in peace and humility living lives of service here in the church so we can be ministers of peace and humility and live lives of service in the city. And so Jesus, he unapologetically, he calls us to cut the things out of our lives when we see how our hearts have been gripped by sin. And we can do that with no condemnation because Jesus is the one who has taken away the guilt of all of our sin. Amen. Let's pray.